Morning, everyone. Great to see you this morning. What is it to be a Christian person? I want to suggest that to be a Christian is to be part of a family with a future. That's the reality. It may not be how you feel. You might not feel like you're part of a family. You may not feel like you have a future. That's common enough that perception and reality are different things. But the Bible's claim for you is that you are part of a family with a future if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And as we've read through Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, we've seen how along the way they are a family with a future. Again and again, Paul has addressed them as brothers and sisters, because this is a family situation. Chapter 1 had a little summary of the gospel's impact on them. He says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. You see that future orientation, waiting for the coming of Jesus, the son of God. In chapter 2, when Paul described his ministry to the Thessalonians, he said he cared for them like a nursing mother. And as a father deals with his own children, he encouraged, comforted and urged them to live lives worthy of God. The God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. There's the future aspect. At the end of chapter 2, more family language. When Paul is separated from the Thessalonian Christians, he says he's been orphaned. Because they are the ones that he will rejoice in, in the presence of the Lord Jesus, when he comes. There's the family future. At the end of chapter 3, he prayed for them. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This is a family with a future. And we are a family with a future. What we have in our passage today is two pieces of encouragement for members of this family with a future. Members of the Thessalonian branch of that family and members of the North Epping branch of that family. The first piece of encouragement was a word of comfort. All family life includes moments of heartbreak and anxiety. And it's no different in the Christian church family. Paul probably wrote this letter somewhere around 50 AD, less than 20 years after Jesus died and rose and ascended. Jesus had promised that he would come again and that first generation of believers seem to have started off with the assumption that that would happen within their lifetimes. Now, as it turns out, that wasn't Jesus' time frame, but they were right to live in readiness. Their focus as a community was on that day when they would receive Jesus when he comes back to rule. The day of the Lord, the day that Psalm 37 had pointed towards, when the people who are waiting for the Lord would inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. A great day of vindication for God's people. That's what they were looking forward to in the imminent future. 
And so it was a moment of heartbreak and anxiety when members of their church died. We don't know the details of the circumstances. They might have had elderly members who passed away. Maybe there were children in their congregation who succumbed to some disease. Maybe there were women who died in childbirth. Losing a member of your church family is a heartbreaking thing. But for these brothers and sisters in Thessalonica, it made them particularly anxious because they thought when Jesus comes, that great and terrible day of the Lord, we'll be ready to meet Jesus. But our brothers and sisters who are in their tombs, will they miss out on the eternal banquet of God's kingdom? Or worse, will they be caught up in God's judgment that's poured out on the earth? These seem to be the swirling anxieties that made Paul write this paragraph. Have a look at verse 13 with me in your Bible. He says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, the rest of mankind, that's a broad category, isn't it? That covers a lot of territory. There are plenty of people around who explicitly have no hope. A popular funerary inscription in the ancient world, which has been found by archaeologists, they found a bunch of these. It says, I was not, then I was, now I am not, and I care not. And don't we know plenty of people today who have that perspective on life and death? But many back then, and certainly now, have some kind of hope for the afterlife. In today's world, Buddhists have the hope that perhaps their life has been good enough that they get to be absorbed into the unity of all things, like a drop of water returning to the ocean, freed from the cycle of existence and suffering. Muslims have the hope that perhaps their life has been good enough and Allah will be merciful enough that they'll be allowed into an upper level of paradise. But actually, Paul is right when he says the rest of mankind have no hope. Because the Christian hope is unique. Verse 14 says, We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Christian hope is not based on speculation or wishful thinking, but on what God has already done, the resurrection of Jesus. Christian hope is a hope that preserves you as a fully embodied human person with the capacity to live and work and love, but without all the distractions, with the frustrations of this age. Christian hope is a hope that depends not on what you've achieved and how well you've lived, but on what Jesus has achieved and how well he lived. No other religion, no other worldview has a hope like that. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. Now he's not saying that the Christian life doesn't involve any grief. Of course, when a beloved Christian brother or sister dies, you miss them. Painfully, maybe intensely. 
And coming to terms with the loss of someone you love is a process that unfolds over time. And it's a loss that you never get over, but which you have to gradually just learn to live with. How do you do that? How do you survive grief? Well, one strategy, one piece of advice from the ancient world and also today's world is to repress. And this advice says a terribly awful thing has happened. You must not let it get the better of you. Use your willpower to disconnect your horror and outrage and shock and anger. Take control of the situation. Stay strong. This is not the Christian way. Don't go telling your brothers and sisters to do that. An alternative strategy, both ancient and modern, is to deny that there's really a problem. This advice says, look, death is just a natural part of life. Your friend has just moved on to the next stage, providing nutrients for other living things, part of the natural cycle of the universe. There's nothing to be sad about. This is denial. This is not the Christian way either. Don't go telling your brothers and sisters to do that. No, when a Christian brother or sister passes away, the Christian way is to grieve, but with hope. To rub hope into your grief, like in the old days, people would rub salt into meat to stop it going rotten. Grieve with hope. Because we are a family with a future. The believers in Thessalonica were really looking forward to that future, the triumphant return of King Jesus. And so Paul wants to reassure them that their Christian brothers and sisters who've died will not miss out on that future. And that's why he speaks about the return of Jesus in the way he does. In plenty of other parts of the New Testament, Paul says all sorts of different things about the return of Jesus. He talks about the transformation of our bodies. He talks about the judgment of the living and the dead. He talks about the renewal of all creation, the destruction of the devil. What we have in 1 Thessalonians 4 is not a full textbook-style treatment of the topic. What we have is a word of reassurance for a particular situation. So have a look at verse 15. He says, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. Now, I have to tell you something here. This is not a verse about flying. Do you ever have those fun dreams? This is not about flying. And it's not about your eternal residence. Because the rest of the New Testament makes it very clear that our future home as Christians is on a renewed earth, not floating in clouds in the air. And so if we start to analyse altitudes and flight paths, we've got the wrong end of the stick here. What this verse is doing, actually, is using established biblical picture language 
to give comfort and reassurance to the Thessalonian Christians. Paul mentions clouds because clouds were a well-established symbol of Jesus' royal authority. At his transfiguration, Jesus was enveloped in a cloud as God's voice said, this is my son, listen to him. At his ascension, Jesus was hidden by a cloud as his disciples watched him ascend to heaven, to God's throne. Revelation 14 pictures Jesus seated on a cloud with a crown of gold on his head. And this all connects back to an Old Testament passage. It takes up the language of Daniel chapter 7, where the prophet Daniel had a vision of one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven to God's throne where he receives a kingdom that would never pass away. Clouds represent the God-given royal authority of Jesus. And verse 17 pictures believers being caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. You know what that means? It means we get to share Jesus' royal authority. We get to welcome him and join the royal entourage as he returns to earth. This same word for meeting is used in Acts 28, where it tells the story of the Apostle Paul. He's arriving at Rome, and a group of Christians hear that he's arriving. They come outside the city walls to meet him and accompany him into the city. The same word for meeting is used in Matthew 25, where Jesus is telling a parable about young women waiting outside a wedding venue, waiting for the bridegroom to arrive so the party will start, When the time comes, they meet the bridegroom outside and accompany him into the wedding feast. And in the ancient world, it was actually a common practice for citizens to wait outside the city gates to meet their king after he returned from victory in battle, so that at his coming, they could join his victory parade into the city. So meet the Lord in the air is not about living in the clouds with Jesus, It's about how Jesus' people get to share his royal arrival on earth. Join the royal procession. And that includes his people who've died in the meantime. The dead in Christ will rise first. Death won't ruin this family's future. Nobody in the family will miss out on this glorious moment. So don't grieve without hope. Verse 18 says to encourage or comfort each other with these words. Now, I think it's interesting that these guys in Thessalonica back then were worried about those who died before the day of the Lord, worried that those guys would miss out. But I suspect actually for Christians like us, we're more likely to worry that people who are alive on the day of the Lord will somehow miss out. Do you ever catch yourself thinking, ah, oh, don't come back tomorrow, Jesus, because I'm looking forward to my birthday celebrations next week? Or don't come back yet, Jesus, I want to I see my children grow up and get married. If we think the return of Jesus will mean that we miss out on something, We've actually not yet wrapped our heads around the greatness of what is to come. It's an understandable mistake because we're comparing what we know to a future that we don't yet see. C.S. Lewis has a great little paragraph about this in his book called Miracles. 
He's talking about how people react when the Bible says there is no sex in the age to come. And he says, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who, on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure, should immediately ask whether you ate chocolate at the same time. And Lewis points out, if you tell this boy, no, there is no chocolate involved, he immediately thinks, oh, sex is all about not eating chocolate. Doesn't sound very good to me at all. Because chocolate is the best thing that he knows. And so it's easy for us to be like that, facing the world to come, comparing something we know to something we don't. The world to come will be different, And not every specific thing we enjoy in this world will be part of the age to come. But let me tell you that no desire will be unsatisfied when we welcome Jesus as the king who turns our world of tears into a world of life and abundance. None of us will be wistfully looking back at lost opportunities. The point for all of us to take in is this one. In this family's future, nobody will miss out. So that's the comforting word of encouragement in chapter 4. As we read on to chapter 5, we get another word of encouragement, but a slightly different type of encouragement. This one's more like a warning. The comfort of chapter 4 was it's okay that some of your brothers have fallen asleep in death. The warning of chapter 5 is it's not okay for you to be asleep. Does that sound contradictory? Some have died and they sleep in death until resurrection day and that's fine. But if you're alive, don't fall asleep at the wheel. Don't snooze off while you're on duty. We're talking about a different kind of sleep here. He's not saying make sure you don't die, but make sure you stay alert, ready for King Jesus to arrive. When will Jesus return? Anyone want to offer an answer? No, if anyone gives you a prediction about an exact date, do not believe them. Jesus himself said, only the Father knows. In chapter 5, verse 2, Paul quotes Jesus when he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Verse 3 says that while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. Peace and safety is what the Roman Empire promised its citizens. Peace and safety is what we assume we have in the modern world with amazing medical science and democratic governments and responsible neighbours. But if you don't recognise Jesus as the king of your life, then your peace and safety is a temporary illusion that could be shattered any moment. That is the Bible's frank warning to you. But if you do belong to Jesus, verse 4 is for you. Look at verse 4. It says, you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. As we live 2,000 years after Jesus' first coming, how easy it is for us to not be alert 
for his return. Those original readers had assumed that Jesus would return in their lifetimes. And it turns out they were mistaken. You and I are much more likely to assume that Jesus won't return in our lifetimes. We too could be mistaken. Could be tomorrow. But how easy it is for us to assume that it won't be. How easy it is to side with the scoffers. How easy it is just to sideline the whole idea of Jesus' return. Just focus on going to heaven when we die. Have you noticed how that is so much more respectable? It sounds much less like a religious nut job when you start talking about Jesus' return. How easy is it for the stresses of this life to consume our vision so we forget about our family's future? We're just getting through the day. How easy it is for the pleasures of this life to consume our vision. So we forget about waiting for Jesus to come because we're just focused on our next hit of entertainment or achievement. We need to stay awake and sober. What does it look like in practice to be alert and ready for Jesus' return? I'll tell you one thing it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean poring over the global news to see if it lines up with certain Bible verses so you can work out if he's coming next week. Some Christians do that. It's utterly mistaken. Because Jesus said he'd come like a thief in the night, suddenly, without warning. Being ready for Jesus also doesn't mean anxiously trying to earn enough spiritual merit points so you can be confident about scraping in. Verse 9 says, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that we may live together with him. Jesus has done everything necessary so you can be confident you'll be safe on Judgment Day. Now, being ready for Jesus' return is being the kind of people who will welcome him as king means remembering who we are and where we're going, remembering our family and our future as we live day to day. I think it's a pretty universal principle that the way you live depends on who you think you are and where you think you're going. If you think you're worthless and you're going nowhere, self-destructive behaviour will probably result. If you think you're smarter than everyone else and you're destined for great achievements, then arrogant behaviour is the result. Paul reminds us here who we are and where we're going so that we can live accordingly. Verse 5, he says, we are children of the day. And I think there's a bit of a double meaning going on there. We're children of the day as opposed to the night. He's talking about clarity versus ignorance. But we're also children of the day as in the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus comes. That's what we belong to. We are citizens of God's coming kingdom, where love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness and gentleness are everywhere all the time. We are children of the day. That's who we are and where we are going. And being clear on that is foundational to the way we live. 
We need to remember that we are a family with a future. Being a family with a future means illustrating that future now. That's really what every ethical instruction in the New Testament is about. It's because the nature of God's coming kingdom, that's why we're called to love our church family more and more. That's why we're called to confess with our lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why we're called to work hard instead of bludging off other people. That's why we're called to support the weak and the downtrodden. That's why we're called to be sexually pure instead of using people sexually. That's why we're called to speak the truth in love instead of gossiping. That's why we're called to stay in control of ourselves rather than getting drunk and stupid. It's because of who we are and where we're going. Because we belong to the day that is to come. And so to wrap up, we are a family with a future. A future where none of us will miss out whether our time in this life is short or long, whether Jesus' return is soon or far off. None of us will miss out. And it's a future we need to stay alert to, remembering who we are and where we're going. And so let's encourage one another and build one another up to live lives that are fueled by hope. Amen.